This past week, uh, I was invited to uh, attend uh, the banquet fundraiser for the uh, Chamber of Commerce in, in Dayton, and the speaker that we had there uh, had a really good presentation, but he went on about an hour, and he couldn't find his conclusion, and he kept saying, I just got one more story, and he'd tell it, oh, just one more story, oh, that makes me think of just one more story, and it was really good, and uh, more than one of our elders were actually there listening to it and commented on what a, a good uh, presentation he had. So I decided I'm going to start using that in my sermons. Uh, if you find me to, you know, just one more story, um, you can blame them for that. I want to begin this morning by reading from Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse number 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We talked about Paul's argument in Romans chapter 4, the previous chapter last week, and how he talks about the faith of Abraham as a model for all of our faith. And we talked about the nature of biblical saving faith. It involves mental assent, that is, that we accept a proposition. But it also involves trust, and it involves obedience or faithfulness. Well, here we see in Romans 5 what our faith is rooted in. The grace of God extended to us in Jesus Christ. We have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him also we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I want us to think about that, that grace of God that's been extended to us in Christ for a few minutes this morning. We all make mistakes. We all wish that we could go back. There are things that we've said that we wish we could unsay. Things that we've done that we wish we could undo. Sometimes we make those mistakes at work. They happen in all aspects of our lives, and hopefully those aren't too costly. But sometimes they happen in very serious areas. Sometimes we hurt the people we love. Sometimes we disappoint God. And when we make mistakes like that, we like to start over. 
We want to put the past in the past. We want to put that behind us. We want to move forward into the future, thinking that you know, this time around, things are going to be different. They're going to be better. I'm not going to make those same old mistakes again. There's something exciting, even exhilarating, about new beginnings, new challenges, new opportunities, new experiences. When we start a new year, for example, we talked about this a couple of months ago in the very first sermon that I preached here. When we start a new year, we like to look back on the past, on those things that we've done and say, I'm not gonna do those things anymore. I'm gonna make a fresh start here in this new year. It's gonna be different. Or maybe you remember what it was like to start a new year at school. Some of you uh, out there who are still in school can maybe uh, attest to this. Now, I, I had senioritis from about the time I was in second grade. So this didn't really apply to me, but at least I know for some of my classmates, they always seemed to be excited when a new year started. New books, new subjects, new teachers. You might even be moving on to a new school. We all love a new beginning, starting something new, just in general. I think that's part of why young people like moving on from grade school and going on then to college or to university. I suspect it's why some people continually like to start new relationships. And it might even be why we all want a new beginning, a new start, an opportunity to rededicate our lives to God. We like to start over. Why? Because the future is undefined, and it always holds for us the hope of something better. But things don't always stay that way. Sometimes, after too many disappointments, we give up. We lose hope. A person can only start over and over and over so many times before they start to think, well, what, what's going to be different this time? What makes me think that I'm going to do anything differently? What makes me think that I'm not just going to mess it all up all over again? Scripture tells us a story about a woman who had reached that point. A woman who had lost all hope. It's in John chapter 4. Every day, this woman carried her water jug to Jacob's well just outside the small village of Sychar. And I want you to picture this woman this morning. She sighs deeply. She reaches down and she picks up the earthen jars and she slings them across her shoulder. With a free hand, she reaches out and she opens the door. And immediately that heat blasts her in the face. It's like opening an oven door and being confronted with that. And her eyes have to take a moment to adjust to that bright, white-hot light outside. She bends over slightly. She walks through the door. Outside, it's quiet, not deadly quiet. The cicadas are buzzing in the trees. But there are no people around. 
She looks up and down that dusty street and she doesn't see another person in sight. See, it's not a good time to fetch water. It's not a good time to be outside doing much of anything, period. The sun overhead has reached its zenith. It's high there in the sky and it's hanging there, seemingly unmoving, menacing even, taunting her. But even though it's the absolute hottest part of the day, she prefers it to the evening hours. Because at least now she's alone. And she would much rather have to endure the heat of the day than to have to endure the comments of other women drawing water at dusk at the well. You see, this woman is the town's local bad girl. She's not married to the man she's currently living with. She's had five previous husbands. Five times she's tried to start over. Five times she's attempted to make that new beginning. Build a new life. And now she's tired of trying. She's given up on marriage. She's given up on respectability. She's given up hope. She's reached that point where there is no turning back, no new start, no beginning, no clean slate. She's just learned to live with her lot in life, to accept her position as an outcast, as a pariah, someone who's not wanted in polite society. And the unfortunate truth is that a lot of people reach this point of hopelessness. After too many disappointments, it can happen to anyone. Maybe you've felt this way before. All of us can despair and begin to feel that there's no hope for a new beginning. But the reality is that's not the way that God sees things. God doesn't agree with that assessment at all. In stark contrast to that, Scripture speaks of a completely new beginning. I think of the words of the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. The new has come. A new creation, your translation or one that you are familiar with might say a, a new creature. And that's because the Greek can be translated either way. It can refer to either the act of creation or the thing itself that's been created. I don't think we need to make any sort of uh, distinguishment here in the text. When someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ, a new act of creation takes place in their hearts and in their lives. They're not simply reformed. They're not simply rehabilitated. They are recreated. They're made brand new. The old things have passed away. All things have become new. As Paul puts it back in our text in Romans chapter 5, we have peace with God. We've been reconciled to God in Christ. 
and we have that fresh start, that new beginning, that new creation because of the grace of God. That is the kindness of God extended to us freely in Christ. That's what baptism represents. That's what it symbolizes. That fresh start, that new beginning. When our sins are washed away in the waters of baptism, our old life dies. We're buried there just like Christ was buried in the tomb. And then we rise up out of the water just as Jesus came up out of the grave and we're something brand new, something different, unlike what we were before. We stand up a new person, a new creation. Why do I mention this now? Because it's that grace, that possibility of a brand new beginning in Christ that Jesus offers to this woman at the well. We go back to her. And as she nears that place, she realizes that instead of being all alone, someone is already there. She hesitates. What's this man doing there in the middle of the day? On closer inspection, he appears to be a Jew from Galilee. At least then she thinks she doesn't have anything to fear from his tongue. The Jews had nothing to do with the Samaritan. They viewed them as a, a mongrel race, crossbred between those inhabitants of the northern kingdom that were left behind when the Assyrians carried them away into captivity and other peoples that they'd resettled there. They worshipped God after a sort, but not in the temple. They worshipped on Mount Gerizim. And so for once, this woman was grateful to be ignored. Grateful, too, that men didn't even speak to women in public. But as she approached the well, this man startled her. He broke all of those rules, those social conventions that she counted on to protect her. Will you give me a drink? He asked. She's thinking, what, what kind of a Jew is this? He's certainly not a Pharisee because the Pharisees would have taken the long way around to Galilee. They would have gone to the east of Jordan. They wouldn't have even passed through Samaria so that they didn't make themselves unclean. And so she replies down in verse number 9, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? But he wouldn't be put off. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus offers her living water, the power to quench her deepest thirst, to give her eternal life. There's a number of points in Scripture in the Old Testament where God is spoken of as the fountain of living water. So when Jesus makes this statement, he's making a claim about himself and about this woman's deepest needs. But she doesn't realize what he's talking about at this point. This woman is quick-witted. You notice the banter here. She says in verse number 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. That ought to take him down a peg or two. Who do you think you are? You think you're greater than Jacob? That's what she's thinking. 
But Jesus pressed on. He was insistent. Go, call your husband and come here. That cutter, that last request took the wind right out of her. She says, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. That cuts her to the heart. Jesus reminds her of her past failures, her disappointments, and the way, to be fair, this woman has clearly been wronged on some level because she didn't have the power to get all those divorces under Jewish law. She's been put away over and over again. And so, because she is so intelligent, she tries to change course. She brings up an old controversy with the Jews. She says, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. And the woman then leaves her water jug behind she, the, she forgets the entire reason that she came to the well. In verse 29, she goes back into town and she says to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? See, in that dialogue, that banter, dodge and counter-dodge, nothing the woman could say would keep Jesus at bay. He kept pressing in on her hemming her in, inviting her to a, a new understanding. And finally, in confronting her with all of these details about her life and with who he is, she had admitted the truth of who she was. And that leads to that revelation on his part. I am the Christ. This woman was dramatically changed by the encounter. Outwardly, she was still the same. But inside, she was brand new. She was being recreated, a new creation here. She no longer saw herself as this hopeless outcast. Instead, she realized that she had been entrusted with a message, with wonderfully good news. The Messiah's here, the one we've been looking for. God is going to make things right. And this woman, who walked to the well in the middle of the day without a friend, without any hope, without a future. She now runs back into town to tell everyone about Jesus. She has met the Messiah. And at the Samaritan's urging, Jesus stays on for two days, and it says that many came to believe in him, saying to the woman, verse 22, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, 
for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This woman at the well in Sychar was a sinner. She was an outcast, a pariah. She was utterly bereft of purpose and of hope. But she encountered Jesus, and she found that she actually had worth after all. She found hope wasn't lost. She found purpose and meaning in life in Him. Friends, what did this woman do to deserve the grace that Jesus extended to her in that encounter? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. That kindness that Jesus showed to her, that offer of living water, that flowed out of His own nature. And the point that I want to make this morning, and the point that Paul makes back in Romans chapter 5, is that we were, all of us, every one of us here this morning, once in that very same state as that woman. We were sinners. We were alienated from God. We were lost without hope, without purpose, and even though we didn't deserve it, deserve it even though we were actually His enemies, Paul says in Romans 5, Christ still died for us so that we could be reconciled to God. The message to those this morning who are in sin, who are separated from God, who think that their life is without hope and without purpose, who think that they're so far gone and they've done so many bad things that they could never be right with God, there's no hope for me. The message to you is that with God, nothing is impossible. No one is so far gone, no one has done anything so evil that the blood of Jesus can't reconcile them to God. There's hope, but it's not in yourself. You can't do anything to make yourself good enough to be right with God. Your only hope is in Christ. And so I want to urge you this morning to come to Him and to make the response of faith. Believe in Him. Put your trust in Him and in that death. Turn to God in repentance be buried with Him in the waters of baptism. Have those sins washed away. Rise up to be that new creation. Now, I know that in an audience like this, many of us, probably even most of us, already are Christians. But there's an important message for us here, too. I think a lot of times we treat our baptism something like a, a get-out-of-jail-free card in Monopoly. You know, we turn it in, and we're all right now. We're good. But now, going forward, our past sins are forgiven, but going forward, it's all up to us. We've got to do it all ourselves. We've got to be perfect. We've got to do everything just right, or else we're in big trouble. 
whether consciously or not. We think about a, a God like the one in Jonathan Edwards' sermon, sinners in the hands of an angry God, like God is dangling us over a fire like some loathsome insect. We think he's just there lurking in the shadows, watching, waiting for us to slip up, and if we do, he's going to be on us immediately. There is someone portrayed in Scripture like that, but it's not God. That's the devil who's looking for us to slip up like that. We worry that we're not good enough or we haven't done enough or our faith is not strong enough. I want to say this morning very clearly, are we supposed to be faithful, to be obedient to God? Yes, absolutely. We talked about that last week. That's part of faith, faithfulness. God wants us to draw ever closer to Him. He wants us to grow ever more into the image of Christ. He wants us to be pure and, and clean and holy. He wants us to turn away from evil and to do good. But note this, we will never be good enough ourselves. We can never keep God's commandments perfectly enough to earn what He's done for us in Christ. The good news of the gospel is that God's, God extends His grace to us not just at baptism, but He continues to extend that to us even afterwards. And in fact, we stopped reading in Romans 5, 8, but to go to the end of that paragraph, He extends His grace not less after we're Christians, but even more. Because now we're not His enemies. We're His friends. We're His children. Picking up in Romans 5, verse 9, Since therefore... We have now been justified by His blood. Much more shall we be saved for Him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Thank God for the free gift of His grace, the reconciliation that we receive in Christ. Whether you've never come to Him at all or whether you're a Christian who's wandered away, if you need to respond to the invitation this morning, we extend it now while we stand and while we sing.